right. You guys are listening to the Flickers podcast. I'm Jesse Grant, joined here with my co-host, John Grant. How have you been? Yeah, pretty good, Jesse. Very excited for this interview. Yeah, me too. We've been sitting on uh, on this interview with Michael Bronner for a while, mm-hmm. um, so we're excited to get it out. It's definitely a different one from us. I think it's a lot more of a, a conversation-based interview where we kind of go off the cuff a lot and just kind of riff about his life and his career as a filmmaker, starting off in journalism, going into becoming a filmmaker, and his relationships with directors like Paul Greengrass and, and working with an actor in Benedict Cumberbatch, who was amazing, mm-hmm. in his film The Mauritanian, which was really cool. And, yeah, and Jodie yeah. Foster. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Jodie Foster and Tahar Rahim, who's yeah, exactly, amazing, amazing in that movie. I yeah. think it was also a good interview to kind of get the um, I think you mentioned United ninety three. Mm. He he has his own personal ties to September eleven, mm. um, and he's you know most of his films have been based around that incident, um, specifically United ninety three and the Mauritanian. Mm. And he said he was done with kind of covering that subject, but it yeah. was it was good to kind of you know see someone personally be affected by it because he was there on the day of September 11. Mm. And then to kind of, you know, give different perspectives of the event as well and not necessarily focus on the event, the actual event. Yeah. So United 93 isn't about the planes crashing into the centre. It's about people overcoming the terrorists mm. on the plane, on the United 93 plane that eventually crashed. And then the Mauritanian is like a, you know, a different side and a different perspective mm. of, 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 of the war of terror and of September 11, which, you know, it's yeah. great when movies talk about an event and they have different perspectives that aren't exactly about the event. I love mm. when movies do that. Yeah, and I think that's his journalistic background where he tries to cover things from all the different angles and give everyone a voice and a point of view, which mm. is super important as a filmmaker. And so, yeah, it was a great interview. We can't wait for you guys to hear it. If you guys are here for Michael Bronner, um, we'll get into the interview in a second. But first, we just wanted to say we've been loving all the engagement on our Instagram and our Twitter and YouTube. We really, really appreciate it. And um, we really want to build a nice movie buff community on there. So if you guys do want to follow us on Instagram, you can follow us at Flickers Podcast. Uh, We're on Twitter at Flickers Podcast as well. And you can watch all of our videos on YouTube at The Flickers Podcast. So go subscribe to that because we put out heaps of content at least every second day, usually three, four clips throughout the week, which has been really fun. So yeah, I guess without further ado, let's get into the interview. All right, so we're joined here with Michael. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Um, basically, we just wanted to start off with uh, through research we saw that you started as a journalist and then transitioned into being a filmmaker. How did that transition come about or that opportunity present itself? It was uh, kind of an evolution. I, I was working first in print and then I was working for CBS News 60 Minutes. It's an it's a investigative news show. Um, I worked there for several years, traveled all over the world, which was amazing, and um, transitioned from that around 2005 into print. Um, And it's kind of a long story, but uh, Paul Greengrass saw a piece that I had done for Vanity Fair about military recruiting. It was quite a long piece about all the sort of illegal things that that recruiters were doing to put kids that weren't qualified either physically or developmentally into the military to go to Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. And they were telling me themselves, the recruiters, because they had um, such high quotas for uh, kids to get, send off and into the Marines and the, the Army. So 
a friend of mine who was not famous at the time, but then has since gone on to uh, create Game of Thrones, said, oh, you should really send this to Paul Greengrass. It reads like a Paul Greengrass film. And I forgot all about it. And uh, several nights later, uh, after being out late, didn't feel like sleeping. And um, I sent it to Paul's, one of Paul's agents and who was out. And it said, send it to this guy instead. So I said, you know, Bob Bookman urgently says to get this to Paul Greengrass. And, uh, you know, four, four or five return uh, emails down the chain of these assistants later, I, it must have gone somewhere because uh, I forgot about it again. And maybe a week or so later, I get a call from Lloyd Levin, who's, who was a producer. Um, and we later went on to make United 93 and Green Zone and the Mauritanian together, Lloyd and I. Um, but he gave me my start, Lloyd and Paul, basically. And, and Paul had an idea to work on United 93 and or to do something about 9-11. And he called me up and, and asked me what I thought. And we talked for about four hours that night. And the next night we talked for about four hours. And just after a few nights, he said, you know, does it make sense for you to come out here to London and we make this thing? And I said, it makes a lot of sense. Were you, were you always interested in, in movies growing up and in film as a storytelling yeah. form? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I always had it in the back of my mind. And, you know, it's it's all sort of storytelling in, in different forms, whether it's, you know, broadcast to you start to write scripts. I mean, you're pulling sound bites from interviews and things like that, and you're writing narration, but it's still, it's in a script format. And then, you know, long form magazine writing really challenges you to figure out how to structure a story, you know, in, in a, in a creative way, you know, uh, over the long haul. And, um, you know, I think screenwriting just kind of evolved from that. And when you working as a journalist, I think you hear so many different voices and from the people that you interview. And if you retain those voices, it's, you know, they come back to you when you're trying to write dialogue, which is one of my favorite parts about screenwriting is, mm. is writing dialogue. Mm. And what were one of the challenges between making that transition from, from being a journalist to being a screenwriter and a producer and just being in film in general? Well, I think the, the rigors of journalism come in very handy in, in the kind of filmmaking that I do, which is often involves true stories or something that is, has, has evolved from a true story, maybe fiction. Um, but at the same time, it makes it, you have to learn how to let go a little bit. And, um, you know, a piece of journalism has certain reality and fact requirements that are quite stringent. Whereas, you know, dramatizing even a true story is a different animal. And, you know, I think it's a, it's, it's a leap that's hard to make, you know, it, and working with Paul Greengrass initially, I mean, he, he comes from a very similar background in broadcast journalism, investigative broadcast journalism. Um, and he was really helpful in, in helping me find my way through, through that, um, and the first, the first project we worked on together, United 93, I mean, in, that, in a sense, that was the perfect transition because it was very fact-based and we were, you know, it was sacred material in a way. So we were really rigorous with facts. And it was a 90-minute movie about a 90-minute attack. And we had, um, you know, we were really calibrated to the timeline. Um, 
you know, that was a huge, you know, that was like going to, to film school mm. to work on that film. And, and, you know, like you said, you've worked on multiple films now with Paul Greengrass. Um, how did that creative relationship form? Because a running theme that we have on our podcast when, whenever we interview people is they bring up creative relationships and how important it is. So how did you know, I guess, from the offset that you guys were getting along and that you could have a, a good creative relationship? And what does that mean to you? I think just it it became evident right away. I mean, we, part of it's, you know, we both come from this sort of journalism background and he's covered a lot of conflict, as have I. And, you know, there's a sort of gallows humor that develops and we just, you know, we have a good time. And similarly, Lloyd Levin, the producer who worked with us and, and put us first put us in contact, um, also a great guy. And we just all got along well. Um, and I really love the way Paul works because he he kind of surrounds himself with you know, people that he trusts and you really feel like especially the films that we made we developed from like the kernel of an idea through the the end film and when you're doing that it's there's sort of no surprises you know you may not agree on everything along the way but it gets worked out in the mix and you know you end up with something that you all feel some ownership in mm-hmm. and and Paul's incredibly gracious and confident and you know makes you feel that way um it's just it was and it's it remains a, a great friendship we haven't worked together on a film since um captain phillips mm-hmm. but we we still talk a lot of them and, and you said oh, something there sorry um you go, Jess. about trust and having surrounding yourself with people that you can trust how important is that when making a film to be able to, I guess, look at the people that you're working with and have that creative relationship with and just be able to trust them with an idea that you hold sacred as well? I think it's everything. I think one one thing that I learned, especially, um, well, on United 93 for sure, and then Green Zone, which was a much bigger production, that directing is too big a job for one person, in a sense. And unless you you know, can trust the people around you and, and know that they'll come through and do their part of the job. Um, I, I think, I think it would be impossible. Um, you know, and I think it takes a, a director who is confident and self-assured to surround himself with people that'll challenge him and, and make him better for it. Um, you know, in the course of my career, I've worked with people that are not that and it shows. And um, you mentioned United 93 and the Mauritanian. They kind of deal with um, the, with 9-11. What is it about that event that compels you to just dive deeper into it and to make stories about it? I think I was in New York on 9-11. I was working for CBS. And, you know, it became kind of the, the center of, of all of our work. Um, you know, from the, the minute the, the first plane hit the building, really, I was walking to work and along the Hudson. And some lady with headphones who was walking stopped and said, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. And, you know, I ran, jumped and grabbed a cab and didn't leave work for many days after that. Um, you know, and it just, for those of us who were oriented towards international journalism anyway, it just became, you know, kind of the, the center of a lot of the stories that I did. And I had done a lot of work in the Middle East before that. Um, so it kind of fit 
in the progression and that, you know, I think I'm done with that now, finally. Um, you know, the, the Mauritanian really started for me in, in 2003. Um, as soon as they opened Guantanamo, I started pestering the Pentagon to let us go as our 60 minutes crew. And it took a lot of fighting with them and a lot of, you know, back and forth for maybe six months. And they finally allowed us to come. And there was a there was a hurricane the day that we were supposed to go. And the only way that we they would allow us to come was on the the air ambulance private plane that that the base uses because other planes would get shot down. And so you know, we're loading our, all our gear in this tiny little plane and there's a hurricane and I'm like, called them up and I said, you know, can we postpone this a day or two? And they said, no, you know, <laughs> let you come now because things have been set up for you guys being here, yeah. which was kind of uh, murky. You yeah, know, things yeah. here. So, you know, we, we jumped in this plane and, and made it there. Um, and we knew that it would be kind of a dog and pony show because that's how the military works. But that wasn't a problem, really, because the question was really, you know, the illegality of this prison and the whole operation. And they, the more they, you know, did their dog and pony show and, and the more they were hanging themselves in mm -hmm. a sense. Um, you know, it's just a it, it's an outrage, you know, the whole existence of the place and. And, you know, it's been a focus of my reporting. I've been there twice. Um, so when Lloyd Levin actually approached me with the book and asked me to read it, uh, Mohamedou Slahi's memoir, and he was still in prison at the time, um, the author of Guantanamo Diary. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at first I didn't even want to read it because I, I felt like it would just be sort of a flat kind of litany of horrors, which I knew too much about already. Um, but it's just such a beautiful book. He's, he's an incredible guy and a, a really beautiful writer. He, and just brilliant guy. He speaks nine languages. He learned English wow. at Guantanamo. Wow. Um, and he wrote the book in English. And so that we optioned Lloyd, Lloyd Levin, Bay 11 and, and myself optioned the book and we started working on it. And then suddenly Mohammedu was released. Um, after almost 15 years in, in Guantanamo and 16 years in U.S. custody and sent home to Mauritania in West Africa, where he's from. So I got to jump on a plane and, and go and hang out with Mohamedou in the very, uh, very, very raw period right after he was released. He was suddenly, you know, he had spent the last 15, 16 years with not only Americans, but hostile Americans, mm. um, you know, and so for me to go there and, and be, but that, those, that's what he knew, you know? Yeah. And so for me as an American to go there and having been at Guantanamo and knowing where he had lived for the last 15 years and not be a hostile person. And actually, you know, it was that that's what you do this job for is those kinds of bonds mm. and, and getting people to tell you stories that they'd never told before and, and couldn't tell other people in their lives. And I guess dealing with these um, sensitive topics that you deal with in, in all your films, how important is it to, I guess, get your point across, but also honor um, people involved and, and other people, friends and family that have memories of a certain event like 9-11? How important is it to, to balance honoring that with also your own, um, I guess, 
own intention and own feeling of the film. Well, that goes all the way back to the reporting days. You know, at 60 Minutes, you basically for your viewers who don't know, it's a it's a broadcast investigative news show. It's a, pieces are 12 minutes to 14 minutes. So it's quite long for a, a news broadcast. And they're sort of small documentaries. And, you know, to ask people to talk to you is is a big deal. But to ask them to talk to you on camera is, a you know, it's a lot to ask. and you know, you, you owe them something for taking that risk. And what you owe them is to be true to their story, to be honest. Um, you know, we would always tell them some, some things you'll like about the piece, some things you might not like, but I think at the end of the day, you'll think that it's an honest piece. Um, and the it's same holds true for, for working on feature films that are based on true stories. Mm-hmm. Is it hard to find that balance between... Um, finding authenticity and honesty, but mix it with drama and work within the constraints of like a film? No, I don't think so. I think, um, you know, there's a power in true stories, you know, and and things that a screenwriter wouldn't think of on on our own. Um, You know, truth is stranger than fiction. And, um, you know, if you can really, if you can really get to the heart of the story, you know, I think that invariably it'll it'll be interesting. And once you once you really commit and you immerse yourself in, in a story like that and, and the people involved and the characters, then I think you can, even when you're dramatizing, you can do that with some authenticity. Um, even if it's an extrapolation of something that happened or even something invented that has its roots in in your homework that you've done. Mm. Um, you know, it's there are very varying degrees that you can do that. Some stories it's easier than others. Um, the state, depending on the stakes. Um, but yeah, I mean that's that's a rewarding part at, at the end of the day when you feel like you're doing it right. Mm. Um, you know, at the same time, it can be as a, you know the screenwriter. You're not the director, and you don't have. The power at the end of the day and and if you're not working with people that you have a good dialogue with and and a real trust and see eye to eye with it can really kind of go wrong right is it important as a screenwriter i guess or is it i guess challenging as a screenwriter to trust the director with the story that you've written well in the three projects i did with paul you know like i said we we developed those kind of from the ground up and in that kind of scenario, there are no surprises. And then since then, I've had some experiences where I've dove, I've done a deep dive myself and I've written a screenplay, whether it's on spec or um, under contract. They're often my, mostly my ideas. Um, and then a director comes on board and, you know, maybe they want to put, put their own stamp on it or... Um, change things around, you know, then, then it becomes trickier because, you know, you've gone all this way on your own and then someone new comes in and, you know, I think the instinct is to kind of take it and make it theirs, which, you know, doesn't, doesn't always rub the right way. Mm. And you made a companion piece to um, United 93 in the documentary, the Chasing Planes. Um, What was, what was that making the documentary like, as opposed to working on like a film? And you being like the director on it as well. 
it was it was kind of a long version of of what I had done at 60 Minutes. And I was so immersed in the story at that point. You know, it, it was like living and breathing it 24 hours a day. And it was mm-hmm. great to be able to, we made a decision to use real air traffic controllers, real military air traffic controllers um, in, in the movie itself, but not the ones that were actually, you know, talking to the planes that day, you know, because then you get into difficulties with trauma. There are difficulties with trauma with 9-11 anyway. Yeah. But, um, you know, we so some guys from the Boston Center Air Traffic Control, we, we brought over some of the, the guys from a different shift, for example or people that were working that day, but not the immediate ones that heard from the planes, you know? And so I knew all those guys, um, they, they had been advisors somewhere actually in the movie, a lot of the real guys were not, but there were people that I knew. So it was great to be able to put them on camera in a slightly different context and, you know, do the, the absolute sort of real story and, um, to have a, you know, twenty million dollar film as B roll is pretty uh, unprecedented for a documentary. <laughs> but it was it was also we made the decision. Um, I worked with a an editor, a news editor from sixty Minutes that I had, Franco Pastilla, who's a Nazi actually. He's your uh, countryman. You should talk to him at some point. <laughs> um, amazing editor, so incredibly fast, incredibly creative. But we decided to do it without narration. Um, and I think that was a challenge, but it was it was a story that I knew so well at that point. And you have to, if you're trying to, to do 48 minutes without narration, mm. you have to know the story that you're trying to tell before you set out and start doing interviews or else you can't, they won't cut together. And, and uh, sorry, go on. I was going to say, when, um, when making 1993, it deals a lot with the people actually on the plane. And um, was it hard to get the families to kind of, watch the film or like to show the families of the people that on the plane to to watch the film, like to show them the film. To be honest, that wasn't my part of the film. Yeah. Um, I had a a colleague, Kate Solomon, who's a, an excellent producer and she, I kind of took all the ground scenes, the military and the Mm. civilian air traffic control and, and Kate went and and met with all the families Um, and really, you know, put in a lot of time with them and a lot of care. Um, we did, uh, she wrote up sort of profiles, really in-depth prof- personality profiles of each passenger that the actors got to study. And a lot of the actors were in contact with the families um, prior to shooting to try to get to know as much as they could about the people because the, all the stuff on the plane, there was you know, no one knows for sure what happened on the yeah. plane. There are phone calls. There, there's some, I heard the the cockpit recordings, um, which were pretty intense mm. and awful. Um, I got to go in and, and hear those at the FAA before shooting. Um, you know, but because they were improvising a lot, they, but it was, it was informed improvisation. So, you know, they, they felt like, the more they knew about the real person, the more they could, that would inform their, their improvisation on, on the set. Um, and as a, to be honest, as, as a journalist, sometimes it's harder to deal, you know, it's harder to deal with, with victims because 
you know, they're part of the story and they're, they're an intricate part of the story, but they don't really, you know, just the fact of being a victim, you don't, doesn't necessarily give you insight into the other parts. Um, you know, so, and so Kate did a brilliant job with all the families and, and, and they're all still in touch. Um, a lot of them are meeting tomorrow at the memorial in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where the plane went down. And I wonder, in a lot of your films dealing with such, not just a true story, but such a deep and impactful true story, how much you have, what's the research process like and how much you really just have to immerse yourself in this story 24, day, 24 hours, seven days a week? Like, what's that research like? Well, it's, it's investigative journalism research. I mean, it really carries over from that process. Um, you know, you just have to know way more than actually ends up on the screen. Um, you know, and you, ha- it's, you have to listen to, to the people that know more than you and really hear their, their stories and their voice and, um, you know, and use that as, as your guide and follow that as best you can. And with the Mauritanian, I feel like it could have been like, it was like three different stories, like three different movies, essentially in the one thing you had three different characters going on these really interesting character arcs. How, how was it balancing those three um, stories, but also giving them each an emotional catharsis? Well, the, the script that I wrote was much more focused on Mohamedou. Um, and his book is just, it's so beautiful. And, and it's also just kind of searingly ironic. I mean, he's, he's a, he's a character and mm. it'll be, you know, his sarcasm is so important. Yeah. That book, because he's describing the most horrible things, but he's, you know, he wrote it as a, as a form of resistance. And part of that is, is to kind of mock the people that are doing these horrible things. That's, that's his space where he can kind of get, a little revenge, you know, for example, he's talking about, there's a scene in the movie where he's being dragged out to sea in a Zodiac, a um, rubber motorboat, and they're dunking him and basically waterboarding him at sea. And um, in the book, he, he says, what a brave operation, you know, he's just, and I'm sure he wasn't able to mock them at the time, but sitting yeah. in his cell writing this book as, as his, resistance um he was able to do that and i don't normally love narration in films but um because the voice added something it wasn't to make up for you know lack of story or you know inability to shoot something it was really another layer um i i did use some narration which uh, the director ended up chucking um, <laughs> but it was more his story and, and, you know, I, I brought in his book was written in, in 2005, it was finished. Um, and he was obviously kept at Guantanamo. He wasn't released until 2016. So I brought in the, it's an adapted screenplay and mm-hmm. um, from his book, but his book stops in 2005. So um, I brought in the, the lawyer. I got to know her really well, Nancy Hollander. And also the military prosecutor Stuart Couch, um, and I. So I brought those characters in as sort of supporting characters for Mohamedou, and, and the director made the choice to, you know, if if you look at it as like a a sound mixing board, you know, he kind of turned up the 
the white characters and <laughs> down the brown character and laughed to the races, which um, I wasn't too happy about. Yeah, I could imagine. Um, how much time did you get to spend with Muhammadu? I know you said you went over and saw him um, when he was first released and quite raw, but um, how much time did you get to spend with him? Did you go see him again? or? Well, you asked about immersion and, you know, with Zoom, I would say probably, you know, for almost two years, spoke to Muhammadu almost every day. Um, yeah, I mean, we, and, you know, he, he now knows my kids and I've seen his, his son born and, um, you know, we're quite close. So that's amazing. So, you know, and it, it, it does take that, you know, it, for so, when you're really, because all the, all the, the stories, a lot of the, a lot of the material in the film wasn't known until, you know, Mohammed and I talked about it. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or Stuart Couch and I talked about it, or Nancy Hollander and I talked about it. Um, it was really, you know, excavating those stories mm. and in their voices, which was crucial. Was it hard to get him to open up about, you know, the waterboarding and all the kind of torture that goes behind in Guantanamo Bay? Was it hard for him to kind of just relive that and just to retell it? Yeah, and it wasn't hard to get him to do it. Um, you know, I think he needed to talk about those things, and I think he couldn't talk about them with it, certainly with his family, who he, you know, he was a, almost a stranger to after 15 years. Um, you know, so at, at once he needed to, and then he also was obviously very difficult. And you know, sometimes he would just stop talking, and he'd be back in that place, and we'd stop. You know, and mm-hmm. and it was quite intense. Um, but yeah, you know, I think I found the film just captured Muhammadu so well and like his essence. And so I wondered if when writing about a real character or even when writing any character at all, how much you have to, like you said, know more than what you put into a, a script and know more than what you put in a film. I, I always feel more comfortable knowing more than, than goes in the film. Um, and in this case, I mean, we couldn't have asked for a better actor than Tahar. He just did a it's beautiful amazing, job. Amazing. And he got to know, he, he and Mohamedou are close now too. Wow. So, yeah, uh, it's interesting. Like Tahar really embraced meeting Mohamedou and, and, you know, talking to him. I think, um, you know, I, I know Jodie Foster spent some time with the character she was playing, but not not nearly as as much. And that's just, you know, some actors choose to do it one way some do it a different way um so that's my sense i imagine that's probably the most rewarding part is the probably the relationships you form after filming and you know now you said like you've grown so close to muhammadu and he practically knows your whole family and you you know you've met his family like imagine that's probably the most rewarding part for the in the film process definitely it is you know because as, as you say it's a very small portion of it ends up on the screen and, um, you know, a lot, some of us that worked on United 93 were just talking about this the other day um, because it's such a, you know, it was so intense and it was such horrible material. But we all, you know, the, the group that made it became so close and, you know, actually like had a really good time, you know, an important time in our careers and lives making it together. And those relationships have really held up. 
And I wonder as well, um, I guess, how difficult it is to block out, knowing that you're making a film and people are going to go watch it, to block out public opinion or block out what maybe society could say or react to a story and just, one, tell the truth and also tell what you're trying to express and not worry about how it will be received. Well, I think that's more on the shoulders of the director. Right. Um, but but certainly, you know, when you're starting out writing something, you take that into consideration. And, you know, with with the Mauritanian, I, th- I think questions of race were really important um, to me. Um, you know, and, and you do think about how this film will be perceived. And, um, you know, that's why I, it was so important to me for it to be Mohamedou's movie. You know, and I think it still was in, yeah. in many ways. Um, you know, but that's it, it's his story, and and it's um, it's, it's you know, especially now, there's more attention paid to that. But you know, these aren't the old days where you know the it's it's, it's all about the white characters. It shouldn't be, um, you know. And I think that that's critical in in a lot of the projects. I've just finished writing. I think probably the most fun mm. film I've ever worked on, um, which is about the really close friendship, loving friendship between Hugh Masekela, who's a who was one of South Africa's greatest musicians, a, a trumpet player, mm-hmm. um, and a father figure to him who was this kind of gangster monk. Um, he was <laughs> born in England, but he became a South African citizen and was in South Africa from in the 40s and 50s. Um, and was really like this kind of street monk and was one of the original sort of anti-apartheid movement figures. He was, um, he was very close with Mandela and Tambo when they were, or Tambo when they were young lawyers and he was older than them. Um, and he was kind of the one white priest that they trusted (laughs) and threw everything he had into it. And it's, um, he gave Hugh his first trumpet when Hugh Masakela was 13 years old and um, was always a mentor to him. And then flash, that was in the late fifties, early sixties, and then flash forward to 86, 87, when Paul Simon goes to, to South Africa to record the Graceland album. And he was accused to, I think the, the severity of it was really a shock to him of, of, running the the boycott breaking the cultural boycott of south africa and um he couldn't he didn't know how to bring the album on tour um he was just getting pummeled accused of of you know giving a gift to the apartheid regime by going there to record uh, and hugh masakela really thought that was a bunch of bullshit and went to paul and said you know you need to take this on tour and we'll help you and he got his friend, Mary Makiba, who's one of the greatest South African singers to come join the tour. Um, and meanwhile, this, this monk was now head of the anti-apartheid movement in London, which was a very powerful part of the movement. And so you've got the Graceland tour playing inside the Albert Hall in London, and you've got this monk who's now in his seventies leading tens of thousands of people protesting Paul Simon outside. And it's this, great like father-son story full of music mm, um, amazing. we have i think we we need to reduce this but we counted i think 40 tracks 
are in the oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we, I don't think we'll we'll get a budget for for forty songs, but, <laughs> including uh, you know a handful of Graceland songs. And how has that tra- how's that transition been for you to go from making you know you know ninety three and and the Mauritanian to making this film? Well, it's it's not like it's not heavy. I mean, it's the yeah. you know it's it's the apartheid period of South Africa, and and as a journalist, I spent a lot of time in South Africa, which and that story, you know, in in a similar way to the sort of Israel Palestine story, it's awful, but it's addictive as a journalist and really always interesting. Um, you know, so that that story was kind of important to me. Um, so I, I kind of had that within my wheelhouse and the music, you know, this is music that I've always loved. Um, so it was kind of the perfect combination. And uh, so that film, it's called Miracle and Wonder and uh, got a great producer involved, Laura Bickford, who did Traffic. Um, mm and the Che films with Steven Soderbergh. And she also produced Beasts of No Nations. And mm. she's, she and I are taking it out to directors and hopefully we'll get to make it. The, uh, the South African, young South African guy who produced the Graceland sessions with Simon is also on our team, Hilton Rosenthal. Oh. And uh, he's, he's put back together the old band, all the old <laughs> South African musicians who played on the tour um so we'll record a soundtrack it'll be great fun if we get to do it that's sick and and i I wonder as well because your films always have such a i guess an essence of not just an american story but an international story and and as a journalist you worked in many different countries um is it important to you to bring to light those stories in the western world as well and to and do you enjoy diving in depth and, and getting an essence of another culture in another country? Yeah. I mean, I, it's, it's my favorite part of, of the work that I do is being able to travel and, and meet people. Um, you know, it also is harder, you know, the, when I was at CBS, it's like find domestic stories, find domestic stories, but I would always end up with international stories <laughs> as long as it lasted anyway. Um, you know, and the same is true. It's harder to make, you know, feature films when the subject matter isn't, you know, American or British um, or for you guys, Australian. But, uh, you know, this one is kind of perfect because it's it's about the anti-apartheid movement and this, you know, this radical monk and this, you know, South African jazz player who a lot of people don't know. Oh, and it's also about Paul Simon and Graceland. So, you know, I think we'll get it over the bar. And do you view filmmaking as sort of just another form of journalism as well? And do you kind of attack it in a similar way as, I guess, a journalist would anything that they do? Because I know they're both storytellers. And so I wonder if the way you view writing movies and, and being a filmmaker is just being a journalist and investigating something. Yeah, to a point. I think um, I, we just shot a film in London. Um, in in may june and july um a small british film that i it's based on a a story that i wrote first as a magazine piece in um 2006 so it's been it's been a long time Mm. uh, percolating but we're, we're in the edit room like in the middle of the night on united 93 and like half asleep i just picked up this newspaper 
it was kind of staring at it and not really reading it. And it saw that it had this little, you know, two or three paragraph story about this guy, young British guy who was convicted of kidnapping by fraud as opposed to kidnapping by force. And no one had ever been convicted of kidnapping by fraud, which is basically like kidnapping by mindfuck. And he had, <laughs> what he had done was convinced, almost, you know, a dozen people over, you know, a dozen years, basically, that no, he wasn't just the bartender or the car salesman. He was working undercover as a, an MI5 agent. <laughs> and he would suddenly tell them like, you know, in a panic, he'd flip on them and he'd say, you know, my cover is blown and you've been seen with me and your cover is blown. You're in danger from the IRA. And he'd take them on the run and he'd stash them in each other's homes, basically. Jeez. And they thought that they were living in safe houses under witness protection. And he'd bilk them for money and the women he would bilk for sex. But it was really, it was all about power at the end of the day. And, and he hated he hated normalcy and he hated privilege because he, he was, you know, sociopath. He still is. Um, it's called free guard. And uh, James Norton, who's a fantastic British actor is, is playing free guard. Um, and Gemma Archerton, who's also fantastic. She's playing the, one of the, I'm hesitant to call them victims. I'm not quite sure what else to call them, but she was one of the people that he manipulated and she never quite tipped completely onto his side and um she loved him but she was determined to bring him down and it becomes kind of that's that's the a a story i guess mm. and you know but that that started out as a sort of pure journalism and i'd already been working in film so it, i had a, a mind to, to write it as a screenplay um but for me you know a sort of long magazine format is a space that's a familiar space and a, you know, a safe space to kind of work out, start to cut between time periods and, and really deeply understand the relationships between the characters, um, you know, and, and the timeline of the story. And so that was, I, I never published that piece. It was a 12,000 word magazine piece, which, you know, I, I was working for magazines at the time, but I chose not to publish it because, I wanted to keep it and and sort of write it as the film. I didn't realize it would take, you know, <laughs> fourteen years. But <laughs> um, but I had done some work with the artist partnership um, in London. They're great people, and um, showed it showed the magazine piece to them one day, and they were really excited, and they optioned it, um, and then you know hired me to write the treatment and uh, screenplay, and we kind of went from there. And you've had so some... oh. It was interesting shooting in COVID. It was the first and, and only experience so far shooting in COVID. It was a real pain, actually. <laughs> yeah, it would be. Yeah. Yeah. And you've had yeah. some. You've you've had some really great actors read. You know, read uh, act out the scripts that you've written, like you know Jodie Foster, Benedict Cumberbatch, and Tahirim. What's that experience like to kind of see them enact those characters that you've brought to life in the script? Um. Anywhere from like really amazing feeling to like really frustrating when it's like something that's been changed, you know? Uh. <laughs> um, no, it's great. It's, I mean, it's really, it's a privilege and a, mm. an honor to actually get to make films that you write a lot of, I mean, I've written scripts that will never get made, um, you know, and a lot of people have written scripts that won't get made 
who haven't been lucky enough to have mm. some made. So it's I've gotten incredibly lucky. And and I guess more of a uh, technical aspect of writing um, for me, as I'm super interested in writing as well, is um, how much do you when you write, do you kind of go to a certain place where you sit down and go, okay, I'm going to write for four hours now, or, or is it just when inspiration strikes or like, like what's your writing process like? And do you have certain daily habits that you try to do as a writer? Well, most of the daily habits you do instead of writing and you kind of pretend that they're priming you to actually write <laughs> the, the amount of time that you end up, I end up writing any given day is like very small to the, amount of time I have spent fucking around and doing other things. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and once you, I have two little kids, so it's like you write when you can and, uh, you write when they're in school and you write at night when people are sleeping. Um, then you just kind of squeeze it in. It would be nice to have like a special dedicated space and, and go up there and just, it's just you and you can sit down and I'm going to write for five hours but it just doesn't work that way. <laughs> and, and like um, you said, you've written. But at the same time, at the same time, once I get into a story and, and into a script, it's hard to think about anything else. So, so it's kind of, you know, you're always sort of working, whether you're actually sitting at your desk or not. And that can, you know, that can be tough with the other elements of your life, but it's, I get really kind of focused and it's hard to, to break out of that, even doing other things. Once you really get into it. But like you said, you've written so many scripts that won't be made into a film. Do you, whenever a certain story. Not so many. I did say so many. <laughs> whenever a certain story piques your interest, do you um, just write something about it? Or do you like to just write about anything that you're interested in? Or is it when you have an idea that maybe, maybe this could be made into a film. So I will try and write it. It just depends. They come come to you in different ways. So the Miracle and Wonder, which is um, the Graceland script that I was talking about, um, actually came to me from some South African former colleagues from 60 Minutes. Uh, fantastic cameraman, producer named Sapiwa Rallo, who's South African. Um, and another um, attorney named David Dyson, who used to get CBS people out of prison during the apartheid coverage days. Um, and they were both, they both knew Hugh Masekela, the trumpet player and worked closely with him. Um, and they came to me and said, we have this great project. We need a, someone to kind of take it on board and, and figure out what the story is and, and write it. And I jumped at it. It was first of all, to work with those guys who, who I love and, and our old comrades and to work on that kind of material was just amazing. Mm. And I guess lastly, um, do you have any, well, I guess you just said you have the South African film coming out and also, um, the British film, but do you have an idea of where you want to go in the future with your career or anything that's coming up on the horizon that maybe you haven't finished writing yet or filmed? I, well, I've started to like a lot of writers, you know, TV is, is kind of a, become more similar animal to feature film these days. Um, and I've, developed a couple um a couple tv projects uh, I, I lived um my wife is a, a professor and she had a fulbright fellowship in in nairobi in kenya oh. the last two years so the whole family's been living in kenya we're back in the us now but 
we spent two years in Kenya and, um, you know, as, as a writer, you're portable and you can, you know, jump on a plane and go where you need to go or set up your laptop. But I, in Nairobi, I developed a, a project that's completely different to anything I've done before. Um, a friend of mine there came to me and said, yeah, I've got this great idea for this, you know, Kung Fu series set in Nairobi. And he's, he's like a Kung Fu master. Um, and a great storyteller, um, Phil Reed. And the two of us just kind of sat down and started kind of spitballing the story. And then we slowly started writing a pilot. And um, his wife is, uh, she's Kenyan. And she's an amazing VFX artist. Um, and she's, together they've worked all over in New Zealand and Australia and Canada. Uh, but they've now gone back to Nairobi and set up a VFX studio in Nairobi. Um, called Iqueta Arts, and she did the 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 deck for us, which is just beautiful. And we suddenly have this like completely strange TV project. That's as as someone we showed it to um, said, it's it's bonkers but uh, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that because that's a compliment, right? <laughs> I, I hope so. so. It's a cool project. If that one gets off the ground, it'll be a lot of fun. Too. That sounds amazing. Oh. And we can all pass this COVID nonsense. I <laughs> was it living in Kenya. Did um, did you enjoy immersing yourself in that culture? Yeah, it's fantastic living there. Um, put our kids in the school down the road, and uh, yeah, I, I had been there in uh, like twenty years ago right. for for CBS, and it went from like a small city to like a giant booming city. Mm. Um, you know, and before COVID, especially, it's your access to all of East Africa. Kenya's Nairobi's really a hub. Um, you know, and I was working on the South Africa project, so it's just a four-hour flight. And no, it was great. It was fantastic. We miss it. <laughs> well, yeah. Thanks so much for joining us today. It was truly an um, an honor to have you yeah, on. Thank you so much. You really gave us. Yeah, a- thanks for having me. It was fun. I hope you guys liked that episode. Um, If you really enjoyed it and you got through to the end, feel free to leave a review. Follow us on Instagram at Flickers Podcast, on Twitter at Flickers Podcast, and also subscribe on YouTube at The Flickers. So, yeah, hope you guys really enjoyed it and um, have a good day.